Greetings, foul tarnished. You are listening to Elden Kings and Elden Ring Discussion. I am Gideon the Half-Knowing, and joining us at the Roundtable Hold tonight to talk about Elden Ring and more is Rage Akari, a well-known YouTuber who has a lot of content concerning Mikola and more. So uh, how are you doing today, Rage? I'm doing good. It's one of those things where, like, as soon as you started talking, I was like, oh my god, suddenly I'm nervous. Usually I'm the one doing this part. What the fuck? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm good. It's uh, great. It's great, yeah. I mean, you know, nerves get the best of all of us sometimes. I know that yeah. my stomach is just Butterfly City whenever I start this podcast until I'm like 30 minutes in, and then I'm like, oh yeah, this is just the regular gaming discussion. It's nothing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think um, it, it's one of those things where most of the time the anxiety just makes me very hyper. But uh, sometimes this is, you know, it's just anxiety and then it cripples you. It's great. Uh, <laughs> well, maybe we can turn it around into hyper mode at some point. <laughs> I mean, I'm currently hyper, so it's fine. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Okay, well, yeah, let's channel that energy into, into discussion. Um. So you've been playing Souls games for uh, how long? Uh, Elden Ring was my first Souls game. Oh wow! Okay, we've got a new yes. a newcomer to the series. Mm-hmm. And I've still yet to actually play any of the others. I've uh, like even before Elden Ring, I'd watched some stuff on mostly like Dark Souls and a bit on Sekiro, but I'd never like really gotten into it. Uh, but then one of my friends, uh, as Elden Ring was like. Firstly, one of my other friends was just like, yeah, I'm going to get Elden Ring when it comes out because I love all of this and it's great. And I was like, oh, okay, that's cool. And then one of my like closer friends at the time, about a week after Elden Ring came out, was like, you're going to love this game. You have money now. Please buy Elden Ring and play it. And I was like, nah, I don't know. It doesn't seem like the kind of game for me. I don't know. And then they fully convinced me into it. And the rest is... Uh, manic history. <laughs> <laughs> that game will devour your brain sometimes with how much lore it has to offer. So, <laughs> yep. So, um, I'm glad. You know, first of all, I'm happy that your friends were able to introduce you to such a phenomenal game series. And did you play through a lot of it co-op in that case? If you were like playing with friends, because I know that that's where at least a decent chunk of the 20 million sales numbers came from, like word of mouth, mm. friend groups playing together and whatnot. Uh, so with the friend group who introduced me to it, most of it wasn't really me. Like I watched people play for a bit uh, before I got it. And then I got it and everybody was way farther ahead of me and they didn't want to create new characters. So we didn't play co-op. Uh, we, I just played through the game as well, uh, and just we kind of just all reported back to each other. Or we like kind of parallel played where we'd be Discord streaming to each other while we're playing, um, which was it was really fun. I really enjoyed it uh, at the time. Um, but then like later on, uh, specifically, there's only one boss that I really co-opted with someone, um, which was Moog, because one of my friends uh, had just gotten onto it, and this was like during my first playthrough. We'd both gotten to Moog and were just like messing around. We went to Castle Soul and we killed uh, uh, O'Neill together. Uh, uh, Niall, sorry, together. Um, and then we both were like, yo, so what, what other bosses have you got? And we were both like, Moog. And so we sat and we played co op for like, I think like two days straight of ki- trying to kill Moog and then getting bored and doing other random shit. 
and then trying back to kill Moog. We just couldn't fucking do it. And then we both, like, separately at the end of the night, when, you know what, we're going to do a solo run each, and we're going to get this done. And we did the solo run, and at the same time, we beat the boss. Uh, <laughs> and it was fantastic. Um, That's fa- but that other- is fantastic. <laughs> but yeah, other than that, like, I, I played, like, uh, seamless co-op with people, but I've never really, like, I-, I didn't really properly co-op so much. Yeah, and honestly, Elden Ring's sort of hard to co-op in without seamless mm. co-op, but... I mean, sometimes it's just not as appealing to co-op in as well, even if you do have it, so I get that. True. And, like, Moog of all bosses is actually just harder when you have another player. Like, his phase 2 transition and moveset is incredibly punishing to multiple people. (laughs) Like, I can see why you wouldn't have beaten him co-oping, and then just, (laughs) like, with all of that cumulative experience would have just gotten him solo. (laughs) Yeah, it was it was quite funny, and it like my first playthrough, I I basically like I switched my build like a billion times, right? I like yeah. completely changed the items I was using, but completely like uh, rebirthed like f- so many times to set up to in order to do that. And during those days, like the, those two days of us like on and off trying to beat Moog, I think I switched from. Uh, Moonlight Great Sword to Radan's Swords to um like Serpent Hunter because I had that leveled to uh I forget this the uh, Remembrance uh weapon for Rikard but the re- the weapon from Rikard Blasphemous Blade Blasphemous Blade yeah um to eventually both of us were just rocking Bloodhound's Fang and t- coping super hard um. <laughs> And and then we just like both independently went to Bloodhound's Fang and did that. And then uh, once we beat Moog, we both just went, okay, we're going to sit in call and we're going to just beat Melania. And that took days as well between us, but we didn't like co-op it because we were like, we want to do this separately, but we'll like do it at the same time. Um, oh, that was a experience and a half as well. <laughs> That's sort of ironic, because it's like, in my opinion, of the two bosses that you have besides Elden Beast, like the two mm-hmm. hidden, optional, secret main bosses, you've got Millennia and Moog. And Moog really lends himself to soloing, because he will crush groups in Phase 2, but then Millennia mm. really lends herself to ganking, because she's like a duelist, she's got really low yeah. poise, so if you gank her, you can really shut down her options. So there's like an yeah. irony in you giving up on that. While fighting mm-hmm. Moog and then doing I solo also, millennia. Uh like to specify, by the end of the second day fighting Moog, I had switched to double Sapuku Twin Blades. Oh my um, goodness. Because <laughs> that just seemed really cool to me, and the jump attack seemed really cool to me, and I obviously was a, a, a brainlet and had, you know, looked up uh, some builds, and I was like, I don't want to do katanas, I don't want to do this other thing, I don't want to do that. Ooh, Twin Blades look cool. Um, and so I beat Melania with uh, the Twin Blades. Um, I've beaten her like otherwise now, uh, other ways, and I've beaten her without Mimic Tear. But that first time I used Mimic Tear because, of course, I did. Um, and it, <laughs> I, I, like, it's one of those things where, like, genuinely looking back on those, like, that first playthrough, there is like, there is no experience in gaming that's ever going to be the same as that. Uh, again, ever. And that's like, it's such a special and strange feeling. 
Yeah, for real. Because there's, there's so many memorable moments that are created from your own interaction and struggles with the game. Not to mention just, like, how exploration-heavy the world is. You just... Mm. There are... I remember when I first played and I just didn't pick up any of the map items and I tried to navigate using only the roads. And, like, the roads would at every point take you somewhere really interesting. It's just... It's an incredibly memorable first experience, especially if you're doing it blind. Mm. Uh, I 100% agree. And I find it, like, also specifically really interesting, like, like, thinking back at, like, the way I played and just how strange my pathing through the game must have been because there were so many times where I would just come to a new area and just go, this game is... This game got bigger? What? I need to go back and finish this other thing that I did. No! <laughs> yeah, um, like, it's insane. Yeah. It's just, yeah. <laughs> there is this one point where I I didn't do Rhea Lucaria until after the mountaintops of the giants, because I kept expecting to find the key way later on. I was like, they wouldn't put the key in Lyernia. Like... Why would they do that? That doesn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> so Renala was not ready for what hit her. Oh, that's that's really funny. Uh, I I find it really like uh, strange that like I, I so there are certain bosses that I did like really out of order. It feels like where like I got into Leyendel off. I think it was just. Uh, Godric and Renala. Um, and I'd beaten Leyendel, and then I went through and I did like got basically up to Fire Giant, and then I went back and did uh Rikard and Radan <laughs> and oh, no. all of that stuff. And then like I like I I, I did it. I I'd never beaten uh, other than in a randomizer either of the ancestor spirits until the last like two, three months. Yeah, uh, and like obviously I had seen the fights and everything like that, but I'd been down into like Nocron and Noxtella and just never done their fights, um, which is just like really like it's so strange to me and so interesting just how you can look at these game like this game specifically and just the pathing that you take is never like literally you can never be the same as anybody else's even close unless you're speed running. Um, because, like, especially your first time, it's just going to be a completely different experience for everybody. Um, and even, like, talking to friends about what they did for their builds and everything. Like, one of my friends, like, even friends who did, like, uh, magic builds specifically. One of my friends did Sword of Night and Flame. One of them did Rock Sling as their main thing. One of them only used, like, the carrion spells, effectively, uh, to beat the game. Um, and then, like, that's only a couple of my friends. One of my friends beat the entire game with a single short spear. Um, I don't know how he did it, even now. <laughs> yeah, that takes some commitment to stick with the short spear when there's so many other better weapons that you find throughout the playthrough, but I admire yeah. that. I, and the funniest part is, I, I sat, and like even now, I can't beat Fire Giant without, like, a lot of difficulty in Phase 2. It takes me a lot of trial and error to brute force my way through Phase 2. And this friend, with a short spear, 
killed him within an hour on their first playthrough. Uh, Absolute king. <laughs> madness, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I sort of get it, though. It's like Sekiro, where you only use the same weapon the entire game, and by the end of it, you know the spacing, the attack speed, mm. everything is just ingrained in your mind. So I imagine your friend with the short spear was really just... <laughs> they had it down. There's like um, a couple of jokes that me and my friends make about this like friendship group of ours, right? Um, where, but like the joke is that I'm Mimir because I like knowing everything about something before I get into it, um, and my ability, it, my best abilities is the fact that I will go away and I'll research about a thing and then I'll learn how to play it through watching other people play, right? So I, it tends like uh, to lead me best to being sat and like helping other people play through because I'll see what they're doing and I'll be like, this is a thing that you can do to f like help yourself learn, like learn and play. One of my other friends just brute forces everything. Like if it's a brick wall, he's gonna run through it until the brick wall breaks and he can get through. Right. Um, and then this friend that uh, like beat the entire game with a short spear surprisingly doesn't do that, but is just like naturally. There's a phrase we have that he occasionally says of just, it's just see. Like, sometimes you you just won't, like, he'll just do it. It will just happen. He'll just beginner's luck his way through the entire game, and it will just work. And it doesn't, it's, it looks like things where, like, you shouldn't necessarily be able to brute force your way through in the way that he does, but he just does. <laughs> <laughs> we love that. We love that. It's fantastic. It's it's art to see, honestly. Yeah. So for someone that was like completely no new to the Soulsborne series with Elden Ring, mm -hmm. did you start your YouTube channel with Elden Ring, or did it have previous content before that? So, uh, like back when I played Smite and a couple of other games that I used to play, I did like clips, vi like videos. I like kind of edited together like dumb minute, like meme clip videos. Um, I did like a, a chess one that I think you can still access as well that I, I'm still very proud of. It was really funny. Um, it was just unbelievably dumb. Um, but like the like, I didn't really like blow up or anything with any of those. Most of it was just for myself, right? Um, it's just when I was playing through Elden Ring the first time and talking with the friend who like suggested I get it, uh, I mentioned like a couple of things I noticed about Vare, and I was like. I know, like there are theories like running around, but I was like, I think I can do it better than the people who are currently doing these series. Um, and he was like, Do it then. Like you know how to video edit, you know how to like do a voiceover. Go ahead, do it. Um, and then during the time when I was creating the video, my sister was getting married, um, and so I had like like in the 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 week leading up to my sister's wedding, I scripted the video, uh, recorded the video got all of the footage for the video, and then edited the video while having to deal with uh, an, like an, an Indian wedding, effectively. And I don't know how to explain it other than Indian weddings are chaos, and it's like a weak affair before like the actual wedding. So I would wake up uh, before anybody summoned me. I would get like three to four hours of work done as soon as I could. Like I was like getting no sleep, basically. Get that stuff done. And then I would go out 12 hours solidly of either partying or sorting random like stuff out. And then I would go back to bed, 
play more Elden Ring and get footage or like do other stuff to get stuff done and then go to sleep, sleep for like four to six hours and rinse repeat for like just under a week before I managed to get it out. Um, and it was like, I, I literally just did it because I was like, I really want to do it now. I'm in the motivation and then I'll see how it goes. I never at all expected to have that video blow up. I just wanted to be like, I can do this. And so I can, I want to do it. Right. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it sounds like quite the handful, but like, I, I totally get how that drive goes. Sometimes when there's like exciting things happening in your life that like spill over adrenaline almost just can get channeled into another activity. Uh, mm. I'm glad that the video, uh, I'm glad that the video paid off for you though. Like how many, how many views did it get at the end of it? I uh, mean, like last time you checked, I suppose. One second, I'll check it real quick now. Uh, it got 110k views, which is, I don't, that's like that. That number still just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, like, that's actually. a lot. <laughs> that's unbelievably crazy. Um, I so like the first like two weeks, I got two like two k views ish. I think. And I was like, oh my god, I've breached, like, thousands of views. That is insane. I'm like, like, crazy how, like, that's way more than I ever expected to get. Like, within the first, like, couple of days, I was just like, 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 within the first week, I got, like, 500 views. And that was, like, hundreds more than I'd gotten at any point beforehand. Because most of this, like, my views were just for, like, my own friends and other people in smaller communities, right? Yeah. And then from like day i think like 10 to like three weeks in it skyrocketed from like 1k views to 90k views <laughs> like like that and uh i i don't know how to explain it other than i i literally saw that and was just like um there's something went wrong like there's no <laughs> way that this doesn't make any like reasonable sense um, I, I do remember, like, uh, like uh, at the end of the two weeks, because I had, like, a really shitty thumbnail, I was like, you know, I can do the thumbnail better. And then I changed it to the current one of, uh, like, 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 with reds and made it, like, more visible and more, like, uh, interesting. And then it, like, obviously, the, uh, at the same time, then it shot up in views. Um, and it was just, like, such a strange experience. And then I was like, oh, shit. This means I have to do another video. <laughs> yeah, you've got to do a follow-up after the reception the first one got. I get that. Yeah. What was the follow-up about? Like, what did what was um, the new topic? The follow-up was on Moog. Okay. This was, like, during the... Like, I, I did all of the Vare stuff, like, around the time when I had done this, like, the whole situation with my friend co-oping through Moog, right? Um, and then I was like, I, I, I like, this character is so fascinating. I'm fully enamored by Moog and the fact that Mikola is there, right? Because we don't know anything about Mikola, right? I want to make like, uh, a video. And that turned into a two-parter because the first half of it was basically um, just like the general mysteries about like Moog in general. And then like I think it was more on the own. I, it's so long ago, I barely remember. I'm going to have to look at the script, because I still have the script. Of course I do. Um, it, like, the first one, I think, was... 
yeah, the first one was more on um, horns, like the stars and stuff, and all of the strange things connecting it to like Bloodborne, I think. Wait, no, that was the second one. First one was to do with Moog and Omen. That's what it was. The majority of the stuff was about Omens and the Crucible and connecting it to the Crucible. And then like the Formless Mother and just like the basics alongside it. And then talking about the Blood Stars and Flame and stuff, right? And then the second one was a lot more to do with like the Land of Reeds, all of the people that were around uh, Moog, and then connecting um, Moog to um, like the Blood Star and then maybe uh, like uh, Bloodborne's uh, formless Odeon or Edon or however you say it. I've never played Bloodborne, but you know, I looked it up and I was like, oh my god, this makes sense. Um, Even people that have played Bloodborne can't agree on if it's Adon or Odin, so you're totally valid. Yeah. Um, the reason I named, like, I, I said during the video, I think, Edon, because I was connecting it to uh, Oedipus, because I think that's how you're meant to say it. Even though, like, uh, I've heard a lot of people say Oedipus as well and stuff like that. It's just, speaking is hard. <laughs> speaking um, is so hard. It is. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, like, I, I did those follow-ups, and then, like... I mean, consistency is never going to be a thing that I'm good at. So it's like, like ever since then, I've done a lot of work on a lot of different things, but getting actual videos out for it has been difficult. Yeah, 1000%. It's like, I've made a couple of lore videos at this point, but every time I do, I'm like, this is way too much work. What am I doing? I'm just going to go back to podcast. <laughs> yeah, um... So, like, the thing is, right, like, uh, I've, I've got to talk a little bit now for a second about, like, the current videos I'm planning. And by planning, I mean I've been writing them for, like, eight months or something at this point. I've been writing them since, like, June, effectively. Yeah. All of them the are The Elden Ring Iceberg. Wasn't that one of them? Oh, my God. Don't remind <laughs> me about the iceberg. I still need to put the iceberg together before I can do a video on it, is the problem. <laughs> And I told myself that I was going to get these Mikula videos out first, because if I don't get them out, I'm never going to get them out, right? Yeah. Um, I made the first one, and the first one was fine. And then I did... So that, like, that took a while to do by itself. And it's almost a month ago since I made the actual... God, it's been a month since the, the DLC one that I did in, like... I did it so quickly. Um... Because the thing is, like, yeah, I don't know how to explain it other than motivation is a fickle and fleeting bitch. Um, and sometimes you get a video done in the space of two days. And that's like the two big videos that I've done recently. The uh, Mikola has uh, like moth wings and then the DLC video. Both of those videos I did within like less than two days. The, the moth video I did in two days. The um, Shadow of the Earth Tree video I did in literally like five, six hours. Um, it's probably why it's a little bit more rambly. Um, but between the fact that I I realized and recognized that I wanted to make videos that were like better quality, I like I confirmed and did proper research on all everything in the video um, and were interesting to the people that were going to be watching it. Um, I ended up in a situation like I currently now I'm in where I have like. 35,000 words written about Mikola with a bunch of different things that I want to talk about. But splitting it down into actual videos is really hard. Um, 
even though like it feasibly should be reasonable. The, the main problem is just that like because of the interconnectedness between Elden Ring itself and then all of these things that I want to talk about, it like it it's like the trying to pull a tree out of uh the floor. The roots are just so intertwined with the dirt that in order to pull it out, you're going to pull the entire like root system out. You can't pull sections out without it being a pain in the ass to do, right? And brute forcing the entire thing means that I would need to make a video that'd be like four or so hours long at this point, which is just simply not feasible because my computer will crash. <laughs> <laughs> the GPU is not strong enough. It's it like it's just the the like it's just too much. It's just too much. <laughs> yeah. No, I get that. It's like I I mostly like to write articles at this point, like scripts that can be turned into articles. I still haven't. I, I wrote this thing called like the Twin Faces of Elden Ring. Still haven't turned mm -hmm. it into a, a video, but like I, whenever I write something, I have started mm -hmm. at least five different work in progress essay type things. But every time I do, I'm like, yeah, this needs context. You know, everything needs context for everything else. So yeah, I always go back context. to like. <laughs> this cumulative timeline post that I think is like 25,000 words at this point, and it's just the timeline, but like it's gonna be too long if I ever finish it. And I, I totally I relate so strongly to where you're coming from. <laughs> mm -hmm. And the, the funniest part about this, right, is that this is just talking about the stuff that I've written on Mikola that doesn't include. <laughs> All of the stuff I have written for the iceberg or um, Godwin. Godwin's a big one that I have a lot of stuff written about that I just the, all of the stuff needs to happen after I talk about Mikola. Yeah. And then on top of all of that, we've now got a DLC that's coming. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> if we know anything, the DLC is probably going to be about Mikola and Godwin at the same time, which gets even. <laughs> It's even more complex. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> so you have all of these thoughts that are half written down. Uh, do you want to mm. elaborate on some of them? Like, what is it about Mikola that captures your interest so intently that you've written 35,000 words about the character? Oh, okay. So I, as a person, tend to go down rabbit holes that find other rabbit holes that find other rabbit holes, right? It just, it happens. Or at least, at the very least, Mikola has been one of those things where it definitely has happened, right? Um, and the thing is, right, as a character, there's so little information about this character, but all of the information that we find is just kind of implied, if that makes sense. Like, nobody outrights, like, there, there are certain people who outright say some stuff about Mikola, but we don't see Mikola do things. Mikola is just an ever-present figure across the entire lands between, right? Um, and so we just are left to look at the uh, the Halic Tree, look at the consecrated snowfields, look at all of the characters who are enamored with them, Gideon, uh, uh, like, like uh, his sister, Melania, uh, Moog, and like all of those different things, all of them like are small pieces to this giant puzzle of who Mikola is, right? Um, and the main reason I just became obsessed with Mikola is because there is so little to actually have about Mikola 
that there's so many gaps that need to be filled in in order for us to know anything. Um, yeah. Which does mean that, like, firstly, I have the width and breadth to actually input my own ideas into there, which is nice. But secondly, those gaps are the kind of things as like a content creator you look at and you go, not even as a content creator, just as a person. When you are missing something, when you're missing a piece of the puzzle, you look at that piece that's missing and you try and figure out what fits the piece, right? What fits into that hole? Um, and Mikola is one of those things where there's so many pieces of the puzzle that are there and there's so many pieces that aren't there that it, you can sit there forever and go down all of these rabbit holes and still never come to some of the conclusions that other people will come to. And that's unbelievably fascinating to me. I think that's what gets me into Elden Ring as a whole. It's like half mm. the reason I like to be able to talk to people who come onto the podcast, because there's so many different holes in Elden Ring that are filled with like assumptions. And Mikola is just this one big assumption about this beloved character that may or may not have coerced people into like loving him. And mm -hmm. like you know, like I feel like from software in general, it lets you explore the impact of what happened rather than the motivations behind it. And it's partly you can, based off of your preconceived biases concerning different types of actions that people can take, can come away with different motivations that they might have had. So it's like you say with Mikola, there's there's so much that you can look at that he's done. He's grown the Hallig tree, he created the consecrated snow field, it's like a holy land, a holy refuge to people. And mm -hmm. he sort of like failed tragically in a way because of Moog, but like you don't know him in particular. Like the only NPC in the game, uh, Rico, was cut that and he would have explained things about Mikola, and that just makes Mikola even more obscure in our eyes as mm. like a viewer. So I I totally get where you're coming from with like how people, readers are naturally drawn to this character to fill in blanks, especially readers who have content creating to go with. Because you know, like yeah. content creating lends itself to theories, especially more out there theories, so that you can differentiate from what other people are saying and yeah, it's it's sort of awesome that people can have so many different takes on this enigma it's, of a character. <laughs> yeah, it is uh, fantastic. Um, I think like I want to uh, like talk about really briefly uh, people's stance on cut content, specifically cut characters, because I am of a certain uh, opinion that it might be a little bit uh, controversial. I think actually. Um, and that I think it is good that they cut 90% of the things that they cut. Um, I think, like, for example, with the Rico, uh, like, like in the entire questline, with the Kale questline, with the idea of the Vike questline that I think that they had, um, like, set up and everything, I think it is a good thing that they cut those things. Um, and I, I do say, like, uh, that tentatively with the context that the voice actors that voice acted those uh, individuals did the most amazing performance and it is a crime that Carle's voice acting for some of those scenes never saw the light of day besides like uh you know people putting it on youtube because they found like the actual files and stuff right um but like 
those things that were cut were done so in like fully intentionally i think like obviously they were right but like in the best possible way because rather than like having a quest line that tells you exactly what was happening it gives you that gap so you have like you do have the ability to sit and think and come to that same conclusion right not everybody is going to come to that conclusion but that's kind of the point almost um and i think that's like completely fine and i don't like i also think it's uh it's like it's like when you're watching a movie right um and you watch a movie and there's a big twist at the end right and then you watch the movie back and the twist completely changes the way you see the movie the second time um that i think is one of the best feelings in like uh just media in general and with a game like this the ability for you to completely miss the twist as well and then come back and then experience it again and be like oh my god what or have somebody else point it out and then it'd be like that's changed my opinion on everything i think that's fantastic now the same time as that being the case some of those quest lines did sound really fun uh and it is kind of unfortunate that they were cut right but i do think it is for the good mostly i totally get where you're coming from with like the cut quest line type deal because it's um like whatever the developer decides to do at the end of the day i think is sort of the right decision because it's it's their creation and mm. i think part of the cool thing of being able to look at cut contents is that you can see what might have happened what didn't happen and it gives you insight into what they finally decided to do and ultimately i think it's like you said, but I think the two major reasons that they cut a lot of these quest lines were because they wanted things to be less spelled out. Like Rico's quest line culminates with him just straight up telling you that Mikola is Saint Trina. Like it's just a direct mm. confirmation where he reveals it to the player. But obviously we don't need that as a community. You don't need that as a reader to the game because you can look at all of the context clues and you can figure out that Saint Trina is Mikola yourself. And it's sort of, it's, it's a better discovery because of the effort that goes into it in a way. Um, mm. I guess the other reason, like, you know, if they had, if they, if they had kept all of the NPC quest lines that they cut, they would have made the world feel a lot more filled out than it was. Because Rico, Shane Height, um, mm. and the Silver Azimi, all of those are quest lines that take place in like endgame areas. Silver Azimi is like the Eternal Cities, which aren't exactly yeah. endgame, they're like mid-game, but they're all areas that aren't supposed to be well-traveled. Like you as a player are discovering this place for the first time in eons, and for other people to just be there or to even come there with you it sort of in some ways lessens the impact in a way so i think mm. that definitely might have gone into the decision i i do also definitely agree that like it, i do think it would have taken away from that feeling of desolation that you kind of get later into the game like i know a lot of people dislike the fact that like a lot of the later game areas feel more empty um, which, firstly, I don't agree with fully. I think that they're empty because you didn't necessarily explore as much in those later areas, which I think is fine. Like, it's completely up to you. But, like, having done those great, like, those, those areas later, they're a little bit more empty, but not necessarily. Um, but, like, the feeling there is emptiness and desolation and, like, 
coldness, right? Like, like that sounds stupid, but like, it feels like the game has pulled away from you. Like, there's less things there. Like, if you've gotten this far, you've gotten to a point in the world where, like, life is just not around as much anymore, right? Which has a, a very specific feeling that I do feel like would have been different if you had been following Rico through this area or you had have had a Simi to guide you as much, right? Because um, by the point that you get to uh, the mountaintops, and, like past the mountaintops, into the consecrated snowfields, uh, etc., you don't have Melina guiding you really anymore. She's gone. Um, or she hates you, one or the other. Um, <laughs> And it does, like, it definitely feels a very specific way that would have just been fully undercut if you had those quest lines. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with that. Like, part of what makes the mountaintops hit so well as a level is that, like, it's this streamlined area that's directly after Morgat telling you that all of your deeds will come to failure. And you mm. go into it with the expectation of committing the quote-unquote cardinal sin. Like, there's a pretty heavy feeling that's going into this. And it sort of fits that the only people you meet in the mountaintops are people that have to do with that specific quest. Like, you meet Millicent up there, and she references the fact that the only reason a tarnished would be on the mountaintop is to burn the Erda tree, and then she chooses to ignore it. You meet Shabriri on the mountaintop, and he tries to convince you to burn the Erd tree even more fully. Like mm. it all it all plays into the direct end game of the quest line. And it's like like you say, if you met Rico on the way to Castle Soul instead of Millicent, or instead of Latena just having a little ghostly apparition voice that tells you where to go to Castle Soul, and if it was just like mm. Rico being there, I feel like it wouldn't have uh I don't know. The, the, Rico's a great character concept. I love me some fat friars that brew beer, but I don't think he's <laughs> a very fitting choice for the end game areas and like the sort of like you say desolation that they try to present. Yeah, I definitely think that um, considering I think he was meant to appear slightly earlier in Liania. I might be wrong actually. I don't remember exactly. Um, and I think his shack is started like was in Limgrave originally. But I don't remember exactly. Please don't quote me on that. Feel free to tell me I'm wrong in the comments. It's been a while since I looked into that. Um, but like the idea that he comes along with you for the entire journey could have been cool. But I, uh, I think the game kind of lends itself to tragic irony when it comes to the endings of these questlines. And I just don't think that Rico's questline ending felt like tragic irony it just felt like an oh epiphany that's it right um which i don't think it was necessarily like the kind of vibe that elden ring has or needed right um and like having uh Mikula be in the mogwin dynasty instead has a lot more of that tragic irony uh like built in um because like if you think about most of the quest lines that we do have Millicent gets to her like final place and then realizes that her uh, purpose was never what she thought it was and that she's uh, like simply uh, the only way she can uh, like stop herself becoming something that she's not is to succumb to like the actual rot and die right rather than being uh, like blooming 
Um, or, for example, like uh, even they're, they're like there's a lot of quest lines actually that kind of just end in tragedy, like like Blythe's quest line even. Where you get to the end of it, all he wanted to do was be uh, there for Rani, and he can't be there for Rani. And on top of that, he's beginning to go somewhat mad, realizing that, like, not only is he, like, a tool for the fingers, but he can't be there for the person that he cares most. In fact, the person he cares most has, uh, like, straight up effectively shunned him, right? Um, or, like, I mean, Celibus's quest line kind of just ends with him just turning into a, a cope, like, his puppet just perishing which is pretty ironic as well i guess um rani's questline ending with her having to give up literally everything to become a god when she's fighting a god who basically did the same thing in a very it's like like different way right um and like all of these different questlines lend themselves to an ending that is tragic and ironic and fits in with the uh, the person's story and by the end of it it gives you a feeling of you did like lots of things to try and help these people and like better their lives, but in the end, like generational trauma plus other things means that it's like it's just not going to work out in the way that you hoped. Um, the world is better off for the majority of these quest lines being finished, uh, and these people lived the uh, these experiences that were important to them, right, and like changed them as people. But then by the end of it. They aren't the person they started off as, and the majority of them are dead, right? Um, whereas with Rico and a couple of the other quest lines, you have some level of tragic irony built in, but it doesn't really feel the same. It doesn't feel the same kind of way, right? Um, it doesn't have that same ending in the way that, like, like I don't know. It just doesn't appeal to me in the exact same way. I don't think. Yeah, I completely agree. Like a lot of the, uh, a lot of some of the more potent storylines of the quest lines, they end in that like tragic irony, like you say. Um, mm. But then with Rico, it, and I don't want to analyze too closely into like the game development process or anything like that. Mm. But it almost feels like while they were rewriting Nicola's quest line to make him be kidnapped in the first place, they were like we should add context to how this happened. So then they wrote Rico, but then by the end of writing Nicola's quest line where he was kidnapped, you know, previously he was at the Halig tree, and they had everything with him and Nogue figured out, and they might have even been thinking about how the DLC could play into this at that point. They were just like, oh, well, it doesn't even look like Rico's necessary anymore. And, like, considering how Rico's quest line is sort of like, it doesn't lead anywhere thematically. He just asks you to collect dream essence for him. He gives you context mm -hmm. to what Moog was doing. And he sort of hypes up Moog's mystery, but he's not even connected to Vere. So it, it just it it very much so feels like he's there to set up the quest line. And mm -hmm. when they realized the, the quest line didn't need set up, they were like, well, why why even have this guy? Yeah, I mean all of those pieces of information, besides the dream brewing, is, like, things that you have in the game already. Um, yeah. And, like, we kind of lose a cool, like, thing to do, I guess. But, like, it's not like we lose too much otherwise. In fact, yeah. I think by, like, uh, in a way, we kind of, 
like gained some stuff. The Moog, um, like like and, like Moog's fight would have been completely different. I think I like the or at least the context of the fight would have felt different by this uh, like quest line being what it is if it was like put into the current patch, right? Um, and on top of all of that, it kind of leads to a feeling of like, wow, when you come across some of these secrets, when you read into those items and you realize like Centrina is what they are and like the point of sleep and then connecting Centrina to uh, Mikola and then going, hey, wait, that's still a thing. That's a connection. That's that's crazy, right? Um, yeah. It's like, people always talk about how Souls games leave a lot up to your interpretation. And then you always see, like, some purists that are like, no, no, there is a story here. They just didn't tell you everything, but there is, like, a concrete story. And I think that's very true. I don't mm -hmm. think it belies some of the more out-there theories, because personal reading and what, like, Death of the Author is a very real concept that Dark Souls tries mm. to encourage. But, like, with Dark Souls 1, I think is one of the best examples where, like, there was always a concrete story behind Gwyn's rise and fall, you know, that was there and sometimes contradicted some of the other theories that came from it. And I think that's very true in a way for Elden Ring as well, where, like, there was an intended story. There is, like, like, I'm sure if you, if Miyazaki was willing to tell us <laughs> that he could tell us an entire, like, laid out timeline of how he sees things happening, but, like, <laughs> I wish I had a better way to finalize that thought, but it's, like, it's better, like, there's a very intended idea of you being able to read the game and come away with your own conclusions, hmm. and they don't want to mix that up with too many of their own concrete portrayals of the story so mm. yeah <laughs> um I, I like i fully agree right um and i think it's really important to have that consideration of yes there is indeed a concrete story to this but that does not mean that you should stop theorizing i think that's quite the opposite actually i think the idea of having multiple ideas that are conflicting but all possible is really important to the health of the community as a whole uh, in law and also to keeping ideas interesting. Um, and something as like, uh, as somebody who plays D&D &D and is a dungeon master, um, one of those things that really like gets to me and hits me is when my players have theories about what they think is happening in my game, right? That always, like, makes me feel really good. It's like, oh, that's cool. And it feels even better when two people have conflicting ideas that both could be possible. Because when you have two sets of ideas that are conflicting but both could be possible, the answer doesn't become which of them is right, necessarily. Like, it should... Like, that is part of it, right? But the the story between those two, what's interesting about those two, that's, I think, the important part. Because it leads to a level of creativity, like, as, uh, like, people who are, in, like, enthusiastic about the lore, that you just simply will not get unless you consider the other options. If you set yourself 
to only think about what the exact like reading like what's the only possible reading of the game you're gonna lose out on so many really interesting ideas like really quickly because when it comes down to it the only thing that we know is concrete is things that are explicitly said or written in the game and if that's the only thing that you're ever gonna look at I'm, I, I hate to tell you this, but you're going to have such a boring time compared to everybody else who uses real life examples of like culture, architecture, uh, design, all of the above. Um, and people who look at other pieces of media that have uh, been like used as um, like context or even if like it's just a case of like this theory is just kind of out there that comes from the theory like the stuff that's already in the game but it's not explicitly said like you lose out on the potential of like being able to say like yes that's true um the other thing i mildly have a gripe with is when people do the second like the final part of that right where they look at only the stuff that you have in the game and then they go ah yes i've extrapolated this thing that's very wild and this must be the only possibility because that's super reductive, firstly, to the medium, um, but also just, it's just not necessarily as interesting as it could be. I, I'd, I'd like to also give an example, I think, um, that I think is quite interesting. Uh, just the idea of Newman, right? Um, I've had like quite a few conversations with various people about Newman, um, and the, the interesting thing about them is there's three different ways that you can interpret their name. Right, just as an example, uh, Newman being uh, like Newman the word, which means like a holy uh, presence, effectively. Newman literally meaning new men, which, you know, new men, right? Like they're the new version of something or the other. Or Newman being related to Numenorians from Lord of the Rings, right? Um, being like an old race that are long lived, seldom born, all of the, all of the above, right? Yeah. And all of those things are interesting. And all of those things can not only exist together, but don't conflict with each other, I don't think. Mm -hmm. But every single conversation I've had, besides with some of the more, uh, like, some of the people I've talked to recently, or some of the uh, more open-minded, uh, like, uh, content creators, um, so, like, a lot of the conversations I've had with people has turned into one of these things is true, and that's it. And I think that's just kind of disappointing. Which is sort of ironic, because I feel like Numenorian, as a Tolkien-made word, may have borrowed from the original root concept of Numen referring to Holy Presence. Mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm not a Tolkien expert, though, but <laughs> this is where my mind goes, considering how the Numenorians were basically Atlanteans, like super advanced holy race closer to the Maiar than any other person in Middle-earth. Mm. But, I mean, uh, I, I completely... I... Oh, go on. Sorry, I was just going to say, I 100% agree with that, <laughs> I think. But yeah, no, I, I think that's a really good breakdown of it. Like, any, any singular view of what happened is somewhat reductive. You know, like, I think it's worth putting multiple lenses together to look at something. Like, uh, how, what is a good way to... Like, all of these games, all of the From Software games are... Like, they leave breadcrumbs to follow, 
And the breadcrumbs can go a bunch of different directions. And like you can mm. like you said, you can extrapolate so many different directions from what the game presents based off of real life culture, history, uh, illusions and whatnot. And all of these different concepts just they fit into the game. Um and part of like part of the fascination is how they might fit into the game. I feel like <laughs> I wish I could put this more eloquently. I feel like you could write an entire paper about how Elden Ring masterfully proposes a disparate series of events that can be jumbled together in multiple different ways with the specific emphasis on mm -hmm. the fact that all of these different events causally come from the same thing. So any examination of one event examines echoes of other events and Oh god, it it gives me a headache sometimes thinking of it. But you you said it, you said it yeah. very well where like the different theories are what matter and sometimes it's seeing how the theories come together and seeing how the theories are different from each other that really makes you like get into I feel like the heart and soul of what was written into these games. Uh, 100%. I I fully agree with that. I I think if if they like okay, I'm just gonna put this out there for any content creators who are uh, listening, and just to just anybody in general who is very intrigued with the law. Uh, don't take what we said just now as a bad thing in any way, shape, or form. I am, do want to just like pause you for a second if you're like, oh, well, I, there's only one version of the law. I genuinely pause your thoughts for a second, and when you're looking back at any piece of law that you're currently doing. I fully implore you to to look at it. Take thirty seconds to look at it and think of what your version of events could be for what you think about it, and then flip that entirely on its head. Go about it in the opposite direction. What, like, just as an example, um, one of the obvious ones is Mikola is the hero of Elden Ring as like a theory, right? Like, Mikola was the good, like the fallen hero, did their best, and then uh, was betrayed and failed, right? Now, look at that and flip it entirely on its head and think about that as a possibility as well, right? Uh, instead of Mikola being the fallen hero, Mikola was the villain who was plotting this entire time and was felled by somebody who actually was, uh, had like surprisingly good intentions, right? Um, and it, by having those things uh, like both be there, you can look at them, and even if not all of that makes sense and is true, right? You can find the points where those theories don't make sense and then make sense of them, and you're going to find way more interesting concepts. What are those going to be accurate to the law? Not necessarily. I'm making that very clear. That doesn't necessarily mean that's what's happening, right? But uh, as like a, a person, I'm always going to come with the interesting theory first and then figure out what makes sense, uh, like, backwards, right? I think, most of the time, at least. Um, yeah. Because when it comes down to it, once you start going one of, down one of those rabbit holes, once you start thinking, hey, you know what? Maybe Mikola is this Griffith-type character. Maybe Mikola is the villain. Once you start going down that and you start finding evidence for it, don't ignore the evidence contrary to it, but start looking at it and thinking... And you're going to find the middle ground that comes to far more interesting theories. Um, and the, the beautiful thing about it is, like, 
that's just one example. But when you look at it like in between, like all of the different in-betweens that you can end up with, right? There are different things that you can invert to get interesting different concepts. Um, like, for example, Mikla intending to be a god of abundance, as per like a lot of the uh, cut contents relating to Mikla's rune being abundance. If you change that to something that's the opposite of abundance, Mikla actually intended to become um, a god of disparity or something similar. And then you begin to think, hey, okay, that doesn't really make any sense. But what do we have that fits there that works with that? And then you go, hey, Melania was actually basically became a god of rot, which is rot and abundance, not necessarily there being somewhat conflicting concepts. And you start working down that route. Or you realize, hey, abundance doesn't conflict with Mikola becoming a god of blood, right? But they're not the same thing. And an abundance of blood or like by the mo like how Moog would have wanted the world to end up is going to end up with a very different and interesting uh, reality, right? Just go with it. I, I hope and I like pray every day that when I watch a video, so many of these, so many content creators uh, just do what is the most easy, basic, simple thing. And I understand that like there's some level of like that's kind of probably get you views if you just explain what the law is as a basis, right? Mm -hmm. But having those speculations, even if they aren't correct, I think they're going to be infinitely more interesting, especially if you can tie them into other things that make them have more context, like real world um, context or other pieces of media. Yeah, like I feel like Elden Ring in particular really spells out the minutia of the lore, like a lot of like in previous games, it totally made a lot more sense for people to like like look at the Dragon Slayer armor and let's make some lore about it. Which like the lore is pretty at times clear cut, but you know, it's interesting to have these pieces of lore about basic concepts that spell things out. But then what gets even more interesting sometimes if you is if you drive towards some sort of speculative element, you know, like you can go and you can get all of the um I don't know, like Crucible Knight lore, Radan lore, but just compiling it is, I admire that, and I totally support anyone that does it, but if you compile it and then add a speculation, add speculative effect to it, I feel like even if that speculation is wrong, you're still driving at something, and it's sort of like, mm. for me, I feel like it's the emotions evoked from the storytelling devices within these stories that really gets me to be compelled. Like, you you read these item descriptions, they compel a mild emotion, a vibe, usually a tragic one, that has some sort of thematic overtone. And it's that interest in the thematic overtone and, like, the through line of it that drives me to want to read all of the other item descriptions mm. to learn, I guess, what was going on. And obviously, if you're, if you're building off of emotion, it's very easily to go into speculation <laughs> like yeah yeah <laughs> i the other thing that i want to like talk about when it comes to like speculation specifically is when you're like as a content creator i know that there are a lot of content creators that i'm friends with as well and myself included in this camp there's like this fear of saying things that aren't true or saying things that are speculative that have not that much basis. Um, 
And when it comes down to it, the thing that I've learned most is you need to make sure that people know that it's speculative, right? One hundred percent. Like, you make sure they know it's speculative, and make sure that they know that this is based on your own assumptions and not stuff in the game. But still, say it anyway. Um, so I had a video. This is a while back now. It's now unlisted, and I, I basically listed a second video of me ripping into my first video, right? Um, and the video was a, a screenshot of a frame in these, uh, like the intro cutscene, which was basically right before you see Melania and Radan, right? And some people might even actually know what I'm talking about. Um, but I basically speculated that a bunch of like random figures that were really blurry were like Rikard and Moog and. Uh, Morgoth, and it was a it was a terrible video because like <laughs> let's be honest, ninety percent of that shit it was like a four minute video, and it was so bad. Like actually, nothing in that video has any basis in truth, right? But uh, while it did like let's be honest, there was some mean things that were said, and sometimes like you're gonna take a hit, right? While a lot there was it wasn't the necessarily the best feeling to get told, yeah, this is this is not true, right? Um, I learned a lot by being wrong. I learned so much. I Firstly, I debunked that own theory. And it took me a while to make my next video afterwards, but it definitely allowed me to realize, firstly, making a mistake, especially just in general life, let's be honest, but in this kind of situation, is not a bad thing, because there are going to be people out there who are going to be able to uh, tell you that it's a mistake, and then at the end of the day, you're going to come to the truth, right? Um, mm -hmm. Or something as close to the truth as you can reasonably come, or you're going to come to speculation that makes more sense. Um, but also, mistakes are by far the easiest way for you to get people to give their own thoughts, because when you mess something up, people have a need to like right the wrong, and they're going to say stuff about it. And underneath those two videos, the like the video where I made the mistake and the video where I rectified it. I got some of the most interesting comments law-wise because of people like, so some of them it was just like, hey, fuck you, uh, get a life, you're stupid. I mean, whatever. Um, some of them were like, okay, I don't think it's this, but have you considered this and this and this and this? And like, I don't know how to explain it other than this game is never going to be the kind of thing that one person alone is going to figure out everything for. Right? Yeah, um, that's too much. It's far too much. But by doing like content like this, or by thinking these thoughts and putting your thoughts out there in the world and being open, you're gonna come across theories that not only like some of them are gonna like conflict yours entirely, but they're gonna be interesting. And then some of them are going to help your case, uh, one way or another. And I think you're gonna find you're gonna have a much better time and it's gonna be a lot more interesting. If you are able to, and don't get me wrong, sometimes it's hard to do so, uh, debate with people, discuss your theories between them, and get their thoughts on this, uh, this stuff in a way that is good and healthy. Now, is the internet the easiest place to do that? Yes and no. People tend to be quite uh, defensive about theories and stuff like that. But I think it is important as a content creator to recognize that criticism does not equal uh, someone shitting all over you and your work. 
yeah. criticism is really important, I think. But at the same time, all of you content creators out there, I know you're the same as me when it comes to this. Uh, you're going to sit there and you're going to get some shit that's just going to suck. And please don't take it personally. Because I know for a fact that you are working your heart off and someone out there is still just not going to like it. And that's purely just because it's a them problem, not a you problem. Yeah. Like, it, even if you have a bad interaction, it's like it's still worth to worth it to keep going and like you said like as long as you're proud like honestly full stop anyone making theories is probably going to get something wrong at some point but as long as you handle what you make and the responses to it constructively you know ignore people that are just being shadows um interact with the people that actually have constructive thoughts even if they're like going against what you say because it's it's the discussion that evolves from the initial thought that makes the community interesting to interact with. You know, like, to me, there's no point in posting a theory if everyone just agrees with it or if everyone just ignores it. It's the, it's the discussion that sparks from different concepts of a theory that can really get into the heart. And, like, that's my favorite part of the community. And... Mm. Yeah, I, I fully agree. That's great advice for anyone that's trying to get into lore, lore making and whatnot. A hundred percent. I like. I think specifically. Uh, so we met on like a, in a, in a Discord that basically ended up with us just discussing a bunch of different things. Um, and I think like firstly, Discord is a good way to do that if you're uh, a content creator or if you're just like interested in law if you want to talk to people about law there's plenty of content creators with discords that are like you're going to have good conversations with them right mm -hmm. or they're like viewers um but like most importantly i think like having discussions and debates and stuff like that about a lot of this stuff is just the like the best way not only for you to grow what you know about a topic but to gr like it's a really good way to just grow as a person i think as well um because when it comes down to it, your horizons are only ever going to be as far as you're able to push them. And I can guarantee you that you're never going to be able to push them more than somebody else is going to be able to push them in a time of uh, like debate or stress effectively, right? Because um, there's, it's, simply put, you're never going to think of everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Sorry. I was like... Oh, do you want to finish that thought? <laughs> no, no, no. Continue. Yeah, I was like, okay, so back when Elden Ring released, I was like very anti-online. I was going through some shit. I was like, I'm not, I'm not even going to bother. But eventually, after reading like all of the item descriptions at work, just like as a way to kill free time, I like, I constructed a timeline. I talked about it. I made a couple of Reddit posts, and like very evidently very early on there were just some like major things to work on like very uh, like my first thought about godwin was that he was like the nameless king where the nameless king remained in an orlando after gwyn mm. went to link the flame so i was like oh so godwin probably remained in landol after america shattered the elden ring and then the night of the black knives happened but what we all know at this point based off of roger's dialogue is that the intro cutscene fakes you out it it says that Merica shattered the Elden Ring, and then it says, 
and Godwin was killed in the Night of the Black Knives. It's not saying that Merica mm-hmm. shattered the Elden Ring and Godwin died afterwards. It's saying that Merica shattered the Elden Ring and Godwin had died in the Night of the Black Knives, so there was no heir, there was no successor. And it's like, mm. it's intentional to mislead you, but it's something that, like, very early, I just, I didn't catch. And it became a very strong basis for later on timeline theories, because in my opinion, the Night of the Black Knives is, like, actually the most critical moment in the entire plot of Elden Ring. So the fact that it happens before the Shattering is important, like, in a, in mm. a lot of different ways. Um just as an easy example of how I think being open to constructive criticism can work. And I mean, if you, I, I'm all for like baseless speculation too. Like I, I don't even believe in this theory that much, but I really love the idea that Nicola is the formless mother. Mm. Um, and I, I've said that a couple of times and like almost every time no one agrees with it, but I still love that the theory can be argued for, that it has evidence for it, even if the evidence goes a little bit too far. It's just, I don't know. I mean, yeah, yeah. like there's a lot of like, there's so many different theories where like, I'm just going to put this out there of like. The majority of the theories I have, again, as I mentioned before, start off as just an absolute random thought I have at like four in the morning or like right before I go to bed or like when I woke up and just being like, oh, yeah. So, you know, this is a thing. Makes sense. Uh, and then just being like, OK, how actually how does this make any sense given the context of the, the game? And there's a lot of times where a lot of those theories just actually make no sense. Um, but sometimes it's like interesting enough that it will send me down a thought process to find something that is actually interesting and like i think i I think like um as as an idea it's always important to not temper those ideas at first to let your like mind run for a bit and have those ideas work and don't shut them down Try and find thought, like, make them make sense as long as they can make sense and then come back to something else that's, uh, like, the opposite or something that, like, makes a little bit more sense within that realm. Um, And, like, yeah, okay, some ideas are just going to be stupid. That's fine. Like, the important thing is that you're, like, you're able to be open enough to have those, like crazy uh like ideas and then rein it back to something that makes more sense um at least i think no i mean i think that makes a lot of sense and i think you talked you mentioned it earlier way back when you were talking about the mikola video how when you Mm -hmm. when you look at elden ring when you try to pull out one part of it it's like pulling out a tree and you pull all Mm -hmm. of the roots and dirt all of it comes at once it's very hard to extricate certain plot details but the fact that everything is so closely intertwined almost makes it so that there's like a built-in fact-checking system. Like, mm. I can make one theory concerning Rikard, and I can look at that theory, and then I can extrapolate it into how Rikard fits into the Carrion royal family, or into the society of the Golden Order as a whole, or even how his like motivations and actions would have interacted with some of the other characters during the Shattering War. And I can sort of fact check whatever theory I had concerning Rikard or any other character because everything interacts with each other. It's 
it's part of why, in my opinion, the timeline of Elden Ring is so much more important than past games, where things were sort of nebulous, because, mm. like, everything's just fitted so closely together. It's like a giant puzzle, where all of the puzzle pieces are imaginative figments of story, and you can cram them into each other any way you want. Sometimes it's better fits than others, it feels like. Mm. I think, like... One of the most interesting things to me is that there are theories that do exist. Uh, and there are theories that I have as well that I still haven't been able to like get into a video. And therefore, I'm NDAing myself from saying them anywhere, effectively, even though I really want to. Um, where they only work if you basically jumble up the, the order things happen. Uh, but because of the way that Elden Ring works, as far as I know, and as, as far as I feel, at least, the jumbling up of the order of things actually makes sense, for the most part. Um, which is really, really interesting, because you get some, like, very strange organizations uh, of the way the game, like, the order of things working, in order for a theory to make sense. But it does sort of make sense. Whether it's true or not, I, I probably not, let's be honest. But, you know... It's it's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we've gotten pretty deep into the Ludo narrative of Elden Ring and from software storytelling in general and how it like combines. So let's like let's take a step back and um I was thinking I wanted to ask you as someone that was new to the series, how did the gameplay like, you know, I, Souls is known for being hard, but then it's also known for not being as hard as people say it is. So uh, how does that sort of match up to you as someone who has experience with other games that are probably themselves incredibly difficult? I mean, the thing is, right, I, I've known like basically the majority of my life that there's there's like a limit to how good I'm ever going to get physically at a game, right? Um, at least when, like, when I start off, I'm going to be terrible at most games that I start off, right? Um, and it takes a lot of like me intellectualizing the way I play in order to, like, make sense of how to play it, right? Um, and so, like, with a lot of the other games that I used to play, I used to go very hardcore into all of the other factors besides my mechanical, like, ability in order to give myself the best advantage in order to be able to do what I wanted to do, right? And so for Elden Ring, I don't think I was particularly very bad at it or anything. It was definitely, like, not an easy game. But it didn't particularly feel, like, super hard to me. Um, most of the time, I would say, the game never felt, like, particularly bullshit or anything. It just felt like, damn, I managed my resources poorly. Or, damn, I just got, like, clipped with something because I, like, missed time a roll. Um, there was, like, there's still a thing occasionally of, specifically if I'm, like, streaming or something similar, my game, like, input lags my rolls. Or my attacks sometimes, which just sucks, right? But what can you do? Which, you know, leads to unnecessary mold. But other than that, I don't particularly feel like the game was super duper hard. It felt like harder than the average game, for sure. But I, I don't know how to explain it other than I, I knew that Elden Ring was a game made by the same people who made Dark Souls at that time, right? But I never really connected those things until after like, basically finishing the game, where I was like, oh, yeah, shit, they're the people who made Dark Souls, and Dark Souls is meant to be, like, a really hard game series, and this is meant to be, like, the hardest one in the series? Huh? That's kind of crazy. 
oh, I suppose that makes sense given this and this and this. But yeah, it's, it was, it's a very interesting looking back at it now. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. As someone who very strongly relates and only ever having like my top skill limited by my clumsy hands and inability to do complicated inputs consistently, uh, I mm. sort of like I, I totally get where you're coming from with the game knowledge aspect. And honestly, that sort of sets you up to be good at these games, because in my opinion, Dark Souls and From Software in general is more about game knowledge. Like, if you know the approach to a fight, like which enemies to kill first, which weapon to mm. use against them, which consumables are useful to have on hand, you're going to get through the fight a lot easier than if you're just like a god at reaction timing, which will also get you through. Like, there's a lot of different ways to brute force it, but you don't yeah. have to be good at the inputs, which is not something that can be said about other games like Neo or Wolong, for instance. Those are mm. somewhat more demanding, in my opinion. Fair enough, fair enough. Before we get deeper into Rage's history with gaming as a whole, and his foray into competitive tournaments, here's a word from our sponsors. Do you live in awe of the natural world? The staggering landscapes that populate both our world and fictional ones? Do the great crags of the lands between, and the disparate biomes that they support, leave you breathless? Well, you should know that the ancient dragons, those godly kings of old, have sacrificed their lives so that they might become the bones of your world. So appreciate them today with Landel's Ancient Dragon Cult. At the Ancient Dragon Cult, We'll cater to all your human needs, such as obsessing over gold and having an unhealthy fascination with electricity. And if you rise high enough, perhaps you too can be like Narl, the captain of the Draconic Tree Sentinels who began the practice when he, in a fit of religious fervor, beat his armor into a twisted, malformed piece of metal and broke his hands into a bloody pulp in the process. So join the ancient dragon cult today, and maybe you too will be graced by Lanciax's presence. In other Soulsborne news, I'm happy to announce that I've finished my Sekiro Let's Play as a soulless plug for my personal channel. The PvP YouTuber Saint Riot has finished his re-examination of old builds series, and capped it off with a Street 6 fighting game video. Square Table Gaming has released their latest video concerning the, the Carrion Knights that served Queen Renala, and Smelltown has released a very interesting lore video concerning the Ancient Beastmen, so check all of them out along with whoever else you so choose. And now, back to the episode. Um, there's like a piece of like philosophy, I guess, it's not really philosophy, it's like gaming philosophy, I guess, uh, that like has come up a lot in a lot of different games that I've been playing, um, where when you're playing like the ranked systems of these games, most of them are like multiplayer games, there's this idea that both the concepts of like game knowledge and then a mechanical skill, having a lot of one of those is going to get you very far. But you do need both of them to be at the top of the list, right? Yeah. Um, but, like, just as an example, like, I got into uh, Apex Legends a lot recently again. And there's a, a lot of, uh, like, me as a person knows how to play the game, in theory, a lot better than the majority of people, right? And I know a lot of random things about the game. And so 
while when I take a fight with someone, I'm always going to be at a disadvantage because my aim is fucking horrendous and I'm unaware of shit. Um, but when it comes to the fight, if I can long out the fight, I'm going to win because I know what I'm doing, right, in theory. Whereas I have another friend who's clueless when it comes to the game, <laughs> basically. But their mechanical skill is so good that if they, they can make all of the mistakes in the world, drop on someone and kill them before, the, uh, before they die, and that's fine, right? They don't get punished for not knowing about the game until other people learn, like, you get to a tier where other people know how to fight. Because once you get to that point, then the actual game knowledge starts becoming the, uh, the tipping point, right? So yeah. functionally, we're about like, I think he's probably better than I am overall, purely just because his mechanical skill is insane, right? But together, we kind of make like a strangely good pair because he'll be like about to do something stupid. And I'll be like, no, no, we wrap around this way and we win and then we win, right? <laughs> yeah, because positioning matters so much and knowing how to position is like, mm -hmm. it's going to help you a lot more than just being able to headshot people at times. Yeah. I um, um, want. No, no, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Um, one of the few shooters that I've like gotten into long term was Splitgate, which I think came out something mm. like last year. My Halo friends got me into it, and like I had been awful at Halo. I was the kind of player that walked around blindly, not checking corners, doing stupid bullshit. Like I was bad enough at the controls that people would just like consistently practice ninjas on me, which is like where you jump mm. behind someone and backstab them while they're still moving, which like, I can barely backstab so backstab in Halo because I just, like, I don't know. I can't see the positioning. Um, mm -hmm. I'm sure if I went back and practiced, I could get it. But Splitgate was really interesting to me because it's just Halo. It's just the gameplay of Halo, but you have portals. And I am good enough at positioning myself with portals and faking people out when they chase me that I can consistently, like, top the leaderboards, at least for a while with that game, which... To me, it was, like, the first time I'd ever done it in a shooter ever, which was, like, it, it surprised me how much positioning matters, which is something that I've since learned from other people. And I only mention it because you brought it up with, the, with mm. you know, the Battle Royales. Yeah. Um, so, like, the majority of the games that I played before getting into, like, Elden Ring properly, um, I'm not really so much of like a single game player for the most part, unless I'm like hanging out with friends in like a call or something. So the most most part, I play like very social games where either, you know, like we're all just playing this game together, like Deep Rock Galactic or something, or one of the like set types of game that I used to play a lot of was MOBAs. Um, and mostly like it started with Smite, but now I play mostly Dota because I don't know, Dota just feels the best out of the main MOBAs that exist. Uh, mostly because I have the ability to just purely win on game knowledge uh, a lot of the time because when it comes down to it, uh, there's so much game knowledge to know that if I know all of it, I just win. <laughs> uh, like to a pretty high degree at this point. Like I would be able to beat a lot of people up into like a pretty decent MMR bracket uh, pretty, pretty happily because my mechanics aren't terrible. They're just like, okay, they're not crazy. Um, but, like, positioning has always been one of those things that, like, is fully ingrained in me as best as I can. Other than, like, let's say Elden Ring. Elden Ring, sometimes it's a little bit hard for me to <laughs> think about it. 
because it's just so chaotic. Um, but it, it's it's really important to position well in all of like all MOBA games. Because most of the MOBA games that exist right now work along the same idea of if you step too far out of line. Um, uh, it, there's a good example of this that like was a reference to like Elden Ring and like uh, Sekiro that I actually heard recently. Um, positioning is like being in a poison swamp, right? Um, good positioning is being on like the rocks and the other things around the poison swamp. And in between those points of good positioning, there is bad positioning in the poison swamp itself, right? Um, and it's not terrible to be badly positioned, but the longer you stay badly positioned, the higher the chances that you get that poison proc and die, right? Um, I guess maybe like death blight is a bit more like better of an example because the like the the like idea is a bit more. And yeah, the immediacy of the death, right. <laughs> I don't think that's um, a word. <laughs> it's close enough. Everybody knows what we're talking about, it's fine. Um, uh, but, like, it's one of those things where you can be poorly positioned for some amount of time if you, like, fix it before the point that you die, right? Um, and the reason, like, I find it so interesting is because with, like, MOBAs, uh, I mean, especially, like, Smite and League, I'd say for the most part, a little bit with Dota occasionally if you're playing supports, there's loads of characters that will just one-shot you. If you step out the wrong way, even, even if you position well for what would normally be right positioning, there's a chance that you just die if you're not positioned correctly in that situation. Um, which is, like, super interesting to me, uh, like, as a concept, but it's really punishing sometimes. And so, like, eventually, having played, like, thousands of hours of these games, like, it is one of those things where it is, it feels like it's been beaten into my head that is one of the important things to remember to do. Like, you need to, like, I have friends who play, like, Apex and shooters and will walk out of cover for, like, extended periods of time. Whereas I, I'm, like, stuck to the cover and I'm just like, I don't want to peek this person because they have that gun, the Kraber, that's going to one-shot me if I peek them. So I have to be very careful and I have to bait these shots because I know it's going to be terrible. And uh, my other friends are just like, that's fine, walks out two feet and then just gets domed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the other friend. That's that's generally <laughs> me. I'm like, hey guys, uh, where are you? And I'm like, you know, around another hill with an enemy team encroaching on me because I accidentally shot my gun when I set down my controller to eat. <laughs> Like, <laughs> I am a. I, I get where you're coming from. I completely respect that attention to detail when it comes to gaming. I'm such a liability. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, right? Well, that's like. Well, that, that's very fair. And I, I like. I respect that you're willing to admit that, to be honest. Um, but the, I think the important part about most games that I play now uh, is just that, like, people are having fun. Like,. Um, so with Smite, I was like a semi-professional player. I never really made it to like actual professional teams. I won a couple of like smaller minor league tournaments. It's like not like hosted by high res or anything, just like like hosted by small communities and stuff like that, right? Yeah. Um, and then I was washed up for a bit, and then I became a coach as the main thing. And they like taught me a lot of stuff about like how to play the game and how to like teach people to play games and how to like learn to play games as well 
Um, but one thing it like really ingrained in me is that if you want to be competitive, you have to be very careful about the people you play with because competitive uh, gaming, 90% of it is just all mind games, right? And your mentality in a game is always going to be the differentiating factor between you and another opponent at the highest tier of play because there's only so much better you can be than somebody else who's at that level of play, right? Um, and so if you mind game someone out, they're going to play worse, and by them playing worse, you capitalize on it and you just win, right? Um, yeah. But that doesn't really lend itself to playing with people who are going to stay friends for a really long period of time. Because unless you're going about it in a very like healthy way, it's really easy for you to be that player who gets mad at somebody for doing something stupid and your friendship breaks over something like that, right? Whereas I think it's really important... Uh, well, at this point in my life, I don't really care about being particularly overly competitive, right? Like, I want to win, but at the same time, I'd much rather lose enjoying myself with friends than win with, like, people who are going to be down my throat about it. Yeah, so you mean when breaking a friendship, it's when you're playing with your teammates and your teammate makes yeah. like, a mistake. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, I like there, there were scenarios where, like, uh, there's going to be certain points where certain players are either forced to improve or they just gotta go. You know, yeah. Uh, if you're like really trying to be competitive, but like at the same time, I'm always going to advocate advocate for you playing with someone who, like, if you're trying to be super competitive, someone that you know and trust to be able to follow what you're doing and work with you, uh, and has a good mentality and is fun to play with, rather than someone who is mechanically good or something similar but is none of the other thing, right? Um, and again, like I mentioned now, like I'm very much so out of the competitive aspect of playing these games for, for, like, for the most part. Like I like winning and I do want to be competitive in a way, but when it comes down to it, like I would much rather play with friends who I'm having fun with and who's also having fun with me than just be winning all the time. And it is... It's hard to really like reconcile those things in my brain sometimes because there's part of the brain that always just wants to be like, I want to win. Let yeah. me win. <laughs> Especially as like a previous, you know, as you said, it's semi professional player. Like you, that old mindset, I'm sure, is easy to feed into it. Like if you're not thinking yeah. about it. Though, um, so interestingly enough, the majority of the time, when I'm in that mindset, it doesn't turn into, oh, this person is playing terribly uh, or something like from like somebody else I'm playing with. The majority of the time, it, it feeds into my brain of you could have done this better, right? Rather than the other person could have done the thing better. Because um, like, if, if I am the factor that I can change, usually. But yeah, it's just uh, like... When I'm playing with friends and I'm in, like, even if I'm in a competitive mindset or anything, the majority of the time I tend to think more, like, introspectively about, like, what it, like, whether, like, how to win better. Because it's easier to, like, consider how you can improve than to try and consider how other people can improve, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Because 
like if you're looking at how you won or how you lost or like where things went wrong, then there's always places where you can watch your teammates and you might know where they went wrong because you've been through that before, especially if you're like the more skilled hmm. player. But there's always going to be a point within your own strategy where you could have looked into that. And there might even be like, if you're like including communication as a strategy, like constructively letting someone know where they could like have done something before it went wrong. I uh, I imagine that those play big parts in it. Mm. Uh, 100%. I, um, um, I, yeah. I played Smite a lot in high school, actually, with my friends. It was only three mm-hmm. of us, so it was a lot of joust, or we had two randoms, or we just did arena where like the two randoms didn't matter. And there were definitely times where, like, you know, I had pretty good game knowledge. My friend had pretty good, like, reaction knowledge, as you described it. And then there Mm. was, like, the third friend, who was the person that got us into the game and was, like, just actually good, you know? They were were basically, Mm. as you describe it, they were the person that, like, looks at us and sometimes gets angry because the motivation to win is there. And he Mm. knew where things went wrong for us, but, like... It was hard to tell us in the moment, you know. Sometimes there's, sometimes we'd uh, we'd make really stupid plays. Like I would sometimes get mind gamed. I'm terrible. I'm terribly susceptible <laughs> to mind games at times. I, I sometimes played right into like the wrong strategy and just got destroyed, and then left them to really like duke it out in like a losing battle. But then there'd be other times where my friend would like build terribly with their class items like there's this infamous moment where he uh he put healing like a healing percentage increase relic on his damage only character which just like that god we didn't play smite for a while after that um oh that's a that's a rough one um (laughs) yeah uh i used to mostly play uh like solo lane and then support uh afterwards because they're like the majority of the people I played with uh tended to be like decently mechanically good or they had like uh like micro knowledge of the game, right? Where they'd know like what their character is meant to do and what they need to build, right? But they wouldn't really necessarily know the like macro knowledge like for later in the game and like the the ideas behind how we win the game as a whole, right? I was good at that for the most part, but like my actual mechanical skill was not the best. It was, like, pretty good, but compared to the people I was playing against, nowhere near, like, gonna be comparable, right? But, like, I'd be able to make calls that would overall bring us into places where we could just, like, win the game as a whole because we were making better plays, was the, like, kind of idea of all of it. Um, But when it comes down to it, like, the things that I remember the most are always, but like most of the, I had some really good moments in like the competitive, the semi-competitive like time we were playing, right? Um, and I had, I like, I'm happy the most of the people that I played with were just people I were already friends with, rather than just like doing the things that some of the other people did, which was like team flitting, where you kind of just like show up on a bunch of different teams because you're good at the game, but you don't really like mesh with anybody, right? Because I meshed with the people I played with, but we just weren't the best. That's kind of just how it went, right? Um, yeah. And I, I think I'm like, I'm I'm definitely way happier for that to be the case because I'm still friends with a lot, like some of those people today. Uh, and I still play like games with them in general, right? 
Um, and some of those friendships are like just straight up lifelong friendships that I would never have gotten otherwise. Um, and it's the same thing to some extent with like, like I mean, I guess with this game as well, actually with Elden Ring, where like my friendships that I've like come across in this game from just making friends with people from like law wise have like been way like some of them are already like way stronger friendships than certain like like friends that I've had otherwise I guess in in a way not necessarily that's not necessarily what I mean actually but like I've made some really good friends in this community is what I mean uh and I'm very like happy and proud to say that they are making it in the world and it's fantastic to be honest oh yeah I I completely agree I think uh I think some of my favorite online friends ever have been from Souls games. Like, it's just, I feel like it attracts a really amazing audience of people that really get into it to consume it as media, and also just like people that are really into enriching communities and mm. being nice and kind to each other. It's like a very supportive environment. Uh, mm. I yeah. also find that, like, the kind of people who ended up playing these kind of games and then getting into it a lot are the kind of people who uh, tend to like associate with this, if that makes sense. They kind of, uh, the mentalities and the life experiences of those kind of people tend, not always, to be the kind of people who have like, do have a connection to this kind of thing, like have faced some amount of difficulty and can kind of empathize with the game and the characters on a, like a little bit more of a, a level, right? It's actually it's incredible to me. I think um like the kind of stories these tell these games tell and the kind of emotions they evoke definitely attracts a certain kind of person. I mean, like you say, it's not always like twenty million people bought Elden Ring. Obviously it's a very disparate audience, but I think at the core of what like some of the people that really, really get into the game, I think you know, it, it it does attract one type of person more than the other, and like mm. sometimes, it, it, you know, like <laughs> I wish I could put it in the better words. I just know that my, I think my favorite bits of community in any game ever has been with souls, like maybe Fire Emblem to a lesser degree, but like I think Souls is like I I have I've had special relationships with people over Dark Souls two with it with Sekiro, and now, like, Elden Ring, ever since it blew up and I came on Twitter since I started the podcast, I, uh, I've met very incredible people. And, um, like, even in one of my previous podcast episodes, I had Quayleg on, and mm. she talked about, like, how many, like, almost lifelong friends she had made as well. So I think there's just something to be said about the tight-knittedness of the community. It's fantastic. And I think, like, having made, like, quite a few friends pretty early on in, like, in this, and then made a lot more friends again recently, uh, just watching, like, uh, how positive people in these, uh, like, in this community can be, and how, like, just watching people, like, genuinely improve as people, firstly, but also just grow as, like, content creators or grow, um, just in in other ways is just it's just great yeah 100 percent. 
and uh, you know, sappy emotional moments. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, not to immediately segue away from that because, like, I really do mm-hmm. love the community. It inspired me to make the Elden Ring podcast. Uh, Saint Trina personally inspired me to actually use a face cam during streams. You know, like that's great. I had her on the podcast as well, but uh, I guess um, would you like to talk more about your experience as like you know you've you've talked about how you were on a team as mm-hmm. like you know playing in those like minor leagues, and how did that how did you transition into a coach like what took you from being on the team I guess into being a coach and mm-hmm. like did you retain some of your former teammates as people that you would coach or did you offer your service? The other people i'm just sort of i guess the the process intrigues me since that's not hmm. something i'm too familiar with uh i, I like so the kind of I, I was just kind of a team coach for different teams along the way right uh most of them were just kind of like uh friendship friend groups because like i i kind of stumbled into quite a few big friend groups where people were just like yo we know you're good with like knowledge of the game is there any way that we could be improving as like a baseline? Um, I was always the kind of person who, when I was playing uh, or other people were playing, I would watch people's like uh, games back. And kind of them just like when we were playing like actually the games in the in the minor league, I would look at those like I say minor league. It wasn't really there was never really a minor league. There was just minor league tournaments. I guess effectively, it's just easier to explain it as a minor league because. Let's be honest, Smite, like, like the professional, uh, like, everything never really got much funding and never really got, like, anything below, like, SPL, right? Which always kind of sucked. It was, it was really, like, disappointing to be, like, yeah, it, like, the only way you make any way of being able to be a professional player in this is you either stream, you make, like, some crazy content that makes a lot of, like, random money occasionally, or you are a professional player, and even then you're barely going to make anything, right? Um, so we just were all kind of doing it for fun, but I would always be the kind of person who, after we done we did the games, I'd look back at the games and be like, okay, this is how we played. This is the mistakes we made. Let's not do that again. Or this is like the, the macro uh, of this, where like the big game plan things that could work, right? And that always just kind of lended uh, better to playing uh like at that coach role rather than like actually playing in the game because in between games like there are a few things that i knew i was really good at right i was good at making calls in game but like as a coach you can't really do that right but still like i knew what things to do on the the grand scheme of things um i was really good at hype manning people in between games because like mentality of course is a really big thing and like it's really important that you don't lose that like hype uh between the games because it's really easy to lose a first game and not get your momentum back and then just lose the rest of your games or like lose like like win a couple of games and then lose a game and then just lose all the rest of the games because you've lost all momentum and getting momentum back is not an easy thing to do without somebody actually sitting there and trying to get your mentality back into the game um also like as a coach i i just like i'm not fully aware of everything right i'm I'm pretty unaware when it comes to things in the grand scheme but when i'm watching somebody play i can immediately recognize when i think that there are things that they could be doing wrong for the kind of style of play they're trying to go for right um 
I can point out like general meta things because I do a bunch of research and everything that I do that would make sense. And then it kind of just came down to just sitting down with players, listening to what they wanted, and then like understanding what they wanted and then helping them reach that. Um, which is just kind of it's not really a thing that people think about when they're like playing with a team. And like one of the teams I'm I'm most proud of like working with, um like they didn't really get any further than uh like that, but they made it into the my the actual like what was effectively the minor league. Like the actual league just below SPL for a bit at least. Um and they they worked really well together and it was really a good time and then like a base long story short, like a patch came out, everything changed, and then people just stopped enjoying the game and were like, you know what, even though we like are doing really well, the game is not the game that we once knew. We don't want to be playing this anymore. I was like, you know, that's fair. Um But it the like the the thing that I think the majority of people who are looking to go into that competitive level uh, need like it's really easy to look and be like I just need more time to play in the game or I just need to practice this character again and again and again and those things are good right but the two things that are always going to be most important if you're actually looking to become really good at any game is keep your mentality going keep yourself positive work with people to help you be positive right and keep going no matter what like if you're going to do that right between games otherwise like don't run your like life into the ground right but like if you want to go for something go for it and ask people and help like work with people to keep going and then the second thing is just being like that outside person uh who talks to the person listens to what they think they should be doing and then rather than like ignoring that working on fitting that into what's currently happening because the thing is right with with games like mobas there are five players on each team and the majority of the time they're all playing different characters and then each of those characters have a bunch of different items and a different ability order that they could be playing and then you got this the big map and then positioning around that right um and you can play like other people in fact the majority of people are emulating the playstyle of another person but the people who are going to be the best and are going to win are the people who play differently and they do so successfully and turning a style of play into a successful style of play uh is the important thing right um and just like it's one of those things where the best like gem of a player that you're ever going to be able to find is the kind of player who's going to look at a character who seems terrible and goes i can make this work i gotta play differently to the way people think that this is meant to work because you're going to get some crazy stuff out of that and it's going to change the game i think okay i mean that's that's very well said you you've covered a lot of different points but like very interesting to hear about it like when you were talking about morale for instance it had me thinking about like <laughs> if you look at you know actual just like 
you know, more tangible events, which like isn't to say that video game isn't, it's like a skill, it's a sport mm -hmm. almost. But like if you compare that to actual sports or even warfare, morale is a huge deciding factor, mm -hmm. regardless of the strategy used. And it's the willingness to keep going at it until you can do it better. That I think, you know, like you say, really makes a difference. Mm. Um, that specifically just like, is is a very interesting uh, topic for me because I never really it never really like put two and two together in my brain until I started watching uh like the behind the scenes of the pros at uh the international for Dota, right? Um and so they they basically do this thing called True Sight where you get to see the final likes like fi the finals, right? From behind the scenes from both point of views from the two teams, right? Okay. And Would you mind just explaining the international for Dota, just uh, yeah. for context, um, real quick? <laughs> oh yeah, of course. Sorry. Uh, the the international is literally just the international. Like it is an international team, like game, uh, game tournament between all of the top teams from across the world, and it happens once a year. Um, and so lots of different teams will come together and try and like make it uh, into the the game series, and then once they're in the game series, it's a like a tournament of like there's a winner's bracket and then a loser's bracket so if you lose once you go down into the loser's bracket uh and then try make it to the final game where in the finals uh you know it's everything on the line like millions of dollars and then lifting of the aegis which is like their trophy effectively um because it's it's uh there's a night there's a, there's a uh non-playable character boss called roshan uh, who's in the middle where once you kill him you pick up an item that just allows you to, once you die for the first time, after a couple seconds, you'll revive on that spot, full health, full mana. Oh, right? shit. Um, so the Aegis is just like that item that like, uh, you know, allows you to come back to life, but like, puts, like physically there as like a trophy, right? Um, and once you win, you get your name signed on it and everything. Um, and so there's this team called OG that I like, loved. They're the only team that went back to back as winners um like for two years in a row they won and specifically there's one of the players he would play offlane um called seb uh, and like he, he's a bit of a controversial figure i love him or hate him um but like i always like was really inspired by him i always really like respected him as a player um and like as a both a coach at certain points but like as a person to keep morale right um and during one of the um like one of the internationals i remember him sitting down and just being like they like it doesn't matter that they're better than us because i can see them cracking right now right i can i'm literally we can literally watch them and we're gonna split them up and take them down one as one one by one we can play any game that we want because even if we are worse, together we are infinitely stronger than they are. They're expecting us to play like monkeys. So let's play like monkeys and let's run of them. Um, and it's just one of those things where at the final game of an international tournament, you're hearing one of the, the captain of one of these teams go, the other team is better than us, but we're better than them because this they they're gonna lose morale so easily right but we're stronger than they are so we're gonna win this and then watch the team 
sit down, play some of the craziest shit you've ever seen, and then win. That's, that's crazy to me. And one of, like, the biggest parts about that is just, like, they're, like, other teams used to get so annoyed at them because they used to do, like, chat wheel lines, they're, like, voice lines spamming uh, in, like, all of their, like, lanes. They used to do things to try and just annoy the other team and make them make mistakes. And then they would just, like, group up as, like, one big ball, kill someone, spam a bunch of voice lines, and then go do whatever they wanted to do, right? And, like, as a, a player on the other team, you're not playing to beat the other person in, like, your role or lane at that point. You're not playing to win the game. You are playing to try and cope over the fact that the other team is so unbelievably annoying that they're getting to you. That is an interesting strategy. <laughs> it worked twice. <laughs> that sounds that is, just fascinating. Wow. <laughs> great. Um, and there's like this... I don't know how to explain it as well other than watching those true sights. He, like, Seb as a person is so inspirational that you can genuinely see that there is a spike in interest in, the, in Dota as a game after those were released consistently by like a large margin of people watching that remembering how beautiful of a game dota can be and how fascinating and inspiring it can be and just being inspired by this uh like absolute master of uh player and then they go and play the game and they're like hey wait a minute this game this is this isn't the same game that they're playing where's the seb on my team <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, everyone needs a sub. Did he actually, like, like, that's, like, you were quoting him, right? With, like, the whole, like, uh, he can yeah, see the I'm enemy team cracking. Paraphrasing. Yeah. yeah. That's incredible. I love that. Just, like, like you said, like, for him to come out and be like, yeah, we're worse mechanically, but we're better because we can crack them. Like, that's, that's mm -hmm. awesome. <laughs> And it's extra fascinating, I think, because, like, everybody would agree that they're not worse um, mechanically. But it's one of those things where Seb knows the people that he's playing with to the point where he knows what they need to hear, not what is the truth, right? Um, and so he came back to the game recently as, like, a stand-in, because, like, he retired for some time, and then he came as a stand-in for, like, because OG just signed an entirely new team of youngsters. And then at one of the majors, after COVID had kind of like settled down a little bit, um, like Ukraine started happening. And so one of the players, I believe, uh, was either Ukrainian or Russian. That's really offensive to be like, I don't remember which, but I don't remember which, right? But it was one of those uh, nationalities. Um, and so he couldn't make it to the major. So Seb had to step in and like take control of a role that he didn't play. Um, but also, like, basically captainship, because the captain was also just missing. Um, and so he took, uh, like, he took control of the situation, was playing stuff and hoping for the best and working. Um, and in that setting, instead of going down the route of being like, yeah, the other team's going to crack under um, the weight of themselves, even if we're worse, we're going to win, he went down the complete opposite route with these players, of just you're better players. You're better. Like, ego check them. Then there's no way that they are going to win this if we just man up on them every single time. Because you are the better players. Um, 
and it was purely just a case of like the players he was talking to were the kind of players that needed to hear that they were better and that they needed the ego enough to make the plays that were going to win them the game, right? Which is completely the opposite of how he interacted with the old team. And I think that's just fascinating. Yeah, because it's, it's sort of like a reversal. The old team is like memeing on people almost and like mm. embracing being monkeys, you know, so to say. While his mm. new team, he just like, you know, they're playing with like a player coming out of profession, like retirement, basically. And he's just like, yeah, you guys are going to crush them and that. Huh. What year was the original international? Where um, um, so well, the first one where uh, it was OG? Do you mean or the first international ever? Uh, the first one that Sab was in, like where he had the monkey uh, quote. If I, I don't remember if it was TI eight or TI nine, but I think it would have been like twenty eighteen, twenty nineteen. And I am fully like I'm paraphrasing. I don't remember the exact quote, but it's it's close enough. I should hope. Okay. Um, <laughs> But yeah, they won uh, TI uh, 8 and 9 were the two that they won, I think. Yes, TI 8 and 9. So that would have been 2018, 2019. Well, that's a very interesting story. Like, uh, you know, I I, I definitely didn't really know that much about Dota in general before this. (laughs) I've played it like once or twice and been terrible at it both times. I love Dota like, with a passion, right? And it's always going to be one of those games where I'm going to sit and I'm going to watch it and I'm going to see all of the crazy small things and be like, this is fantastic. But Dota and MOBAs in general are the kind of games that are really hard to just get somebody, like, into. Like, there's a lot you need to know in order to play the game to a a level, any level. Um... And it is a really big time investment. And so I don't like... Uh, like Even I, who loves Dota, I don't play Dota much. If, like, ever, really, at this point. Um, I'll watch it occasionally, and I'll watch the majors like with my friends. But like actually playing the game feels quite like... It's very time-investing, and it's quite difficult, right? Same with most of the other MOBAs. Like... I'm going to have reasons for like liking Dota over any of the others and like, you know, teach their own, but it's one of those things where I don't blame anybody for not getting into Dota, but at the same time, I would love to be able to share this with more people because there's just, there's lots of games out there where you can watch the game play out and it will play out seemingly the same constantly, right? Um, but with Dota, there's so many small tiny things that change the like entire like setup of the entire game that you can put the same two teams the same players the same characters tell them that they are forced to build the same items and you can make them fight against each other a thousand times and i don't think that the game is going to play out the same like twice in a row like twice ever and it's it's just fantastic uh i don't know what else to say <laughs> that's interesting when you say it won't play out the same way that's just because of the minutiae of the tactics and mm-hmm. each okay yeah, it's, the minutiae of the tactics the minutiae of all of the small things that can happen the randomness of the way that the game plays out um the like it's, the game is built upon 
the smallest of things having the most massive of uh, spirals. Like there was a game I was watching yesterday where um, like a team lost and it all butterfly affected because their mid laner teleported from the bottom side of the map to the top side of the map when he didn't need to. He they completely lost the game from a bunch of knock on effects that happened from that one moment. Um, okay. And that's like that's really daunting and terrifying, but it's also really, really interesting. Yeah, because like part of that losing the game is because of how long the death cooldown is. They just consecutively mm-hmm. couldn't win different matches. And is it like because of possible? Is it that and then snowballing or like? Uh, I guess I'm interested in like. I'm sorry. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm just asking to be more familiar with like what you would describe as the minutia of what's happening in that okay. like um, scenario. So in that particular scenario, it was a case of like them positioning themselves on the wrong type like side of the map meant they wasted some time getting back down to the bottom side of the map to defend it, which meant then on top of that, the other team had more time to pressure that side of the map, which meant that side of the map like they lost their tower there, and yeah. that had a knock-on effect further and on and on and on and on where. They lost map control, and by losing some map control, they lost pressure. And by losing pressure, they lost places to farm, so they lost money later on the game. Um, And then by losing that money, they didn't have the items to be able to deal with the characters that they were trying to deal with. And it continued on and onwards. And it all happened from one, like, TP to defend the wrong side of the map, right? Yeah. Um, And, like, that's not even, like, the best example of, like... Like that's a good example of like the 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 way it can snowball, right? But like the way that Dota is built is it's very easily this back and forth, right? Where just as easy in one game that TP loses the game like it did, right? Another game that TP loses them the game for the first half, and then someone else makes a mistake during a team fight, loses that team fight, and then the game is back to being even or like even winning for the team who was initially losing. And it's the smallest of, like, tech uh, things that people can do that bring the ability to win a fight. Like, I remember um, there was a fight, like, a little while back that I watched where there's an item uh, called Mana Boots, I think it's called Mana Boots at least, where you press the button and it just gives you and people around you mana, right? Um, And a player, uh, like, it gives you a flat number of mana, like, amount of mana, but what you can do is you can drop an item that has a mana stat to reduce your maximum mana pool. So when you press the button, it gives you more of your maximum mana percentage. So when you pick the item back up, the percentage auto accurate, like auto makes itself make sense. So you keep the percentage and overall have more mana. It's confusing, oh. but it makes sense, sort of. But long story yeah. short, this player didn't do that in a fight, like just before the fight happened and went to the fight, and then didn't have enough uh, mana to cast their ultimate, and they lost the fight. Where, like, and it's, like, the fact of, like, the small things like that adding up, where every single team fight is this beautiful, like, cacophony of different small decisions being made that lead to, like, the fight swinging one way or another where positioning and like the time people cast spells and they all of this other stuff it's just it's crazy to watch it sounds like uh especially if you know what's going on 
Yeah. Uh, but that is, like, the difficulty of this game. Like, getting to the point where you know what's going on is just more difficult than other games. Yeah, there's just a very high uh, floor, skill floor for getting into it with the knowledge base required. Mm. 100%. Well, thank you so much for elaborating on like so much of your like personal history with MOBAs and competitive gaming, as well as you know how you got into Elden Ring itself. I'm very happy you did so that we could get the chance to meet and you could come on mm. the podcast. Me too. Uh, this has been fantastic. Oh, <laughs> well, I'm happy to hear that. Uh, before I let you, before I let you go for the episode, is there anything else you'd like to bring up or shout out or let you know have be heard by the numerous people that view this? Uh, speaking of like motivation and like motivational speaking, I just want to like break the fourth wall for a second for the people who are watching and just be like. You, person who is watching this, you are fantastic. You are a wonderful person, and I'm sure you're going through some rough times, as everybody is. But please do not give up on what you're doing. Don't give up on your dreams. Try your hardest to do whatever makes you feel happy, so long as it doesn't hurt anybody, of course. And don't let people tell you that what you're doing uh, doesn't make sense. The important thing is to realize, I think, that there's a difference between making money and this, that, and the other, and like actually doing things that in, you enjoy or bring meaning to your life. And I think it's extremely important that everybody realizes that those things, purpose is not necessarily found by production, right? And so I implore you that if you are going to create, that the next thing that you create, whatever it be, is not something for people to consume. It's not something for, uh, that other people want. It's what you want to make for yourself. If you're an artist, make a piece of art for yourself and then don't post it on social media. If you're a musician, write a song and play it for yourself. And uh, if after the fact you decide you want to put it up feel free to do so but the important part is that it is for you and only you at first because you are fantastic and you deserve to realize that you are the mo you are important and that your work is important uh and your dreams are important i hope to watch you all grow into beautiful hailing trees that don't wilt um and thank you for having me on uh, today, Gideon. It has been an honor. I am honored to have been able to let you join. And with that wonderful motivational speech to cap things off, this has been Elden King's and Elden Ring Discussion, guest starring Rei Jakari, and supported by Elden Ring Discussion, the subreddit, as well as Cypher Ring, the Discord, and their affiliate Discords and subreddits. Thank you to everyone that's listened this long, and spe a special thanks to Rage for taking the time out of schedule to chat with me. I'd also like to thank Cosmic Tayo for lending me his wonderful music to use for the podcast, along with my very helpful moderators. Feel free to share some of your own Elden Ring experiences and theories, or otherwise, down below if you'd like, and maybe go check out the rest of the podcast. We've guest starred quite a few interesting content creators. Thanks again, and as always, 
Don't you dare go hollow on me.